This is The Guardian. Just a warning, there is some strong language in this episode. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, friends. How's it going? Today is the last episode of Comfort Eating for this season. I'm feeling very strange. I'm going to miss celebrities turning up with their little bundles of delicious, well, not always delicious snacks. Anyway, I'm going out on a bang because my guest today is a serious big cheese in the music industry. I'm going to need some proper sustenance before I meet him. I'm just having a piece of toast thickly buttered and I'm going to have coleslaw, salt and pepper and I'm going to dip it into sweet chilli sauce. (laughs) I feel actually embarrassed to say this out loud. This was the whole point of the podcast that I was going to admit these things that I've eaten. Very soon, elbow frontman Guy Garvey is going to be knocking on my door. Elbow are just one of those bands that almost all of us can sing along to one of their songs. And in their hometown Manchester, they are regarded as some of the city's best-loved sons. You might also know Guy from his Six Music show, which he's hosted since 2007. Now, Guy is not only Elbow's lead vocalist, he's also responsible for the lyrics. And it's his ability to write songs that has cemented his place as one of the greats. Now, as you know, I'm all about the important questions. What food maketh this kind of tender and poetic man? We're about to find out. That's the end of the Christmas coleslaw. Quite emotional, really. (laughs) Guy Garvey, welcome to Comfort Eating. Lovely to be here, Grace. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. Do you remember sitting in a kitchen with me and you were playing the guitar? 
No. It was a long time ago. Oh, no. And it was a Christmas. And we ended up at someone's house. And you got the guitar and played it. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got I, say, I didn't know the time when I was 17, but I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't that long ago. I can't remember what you were playing either. Well, I, there's very little I can play on the guitar. <laughs> I've learned that it's better not to have any expectations when it comes to the comfort foods that my guests bring to me. But I am itching to see what you've brought. Guy, what are we eating? There you are. Thank you very much. And I am genuinely hungry. Oh. So, this is a delicacy which uh, I think was invented in <laughs> uh, the cafe on the top floor of Affleck's Palace in Manchester. I used to come down to go to Affleck's Palace especially. Right. From, from Carlisle to buy my Smith's T-shirts and then to buy my Mission T-shirts. Oh, right, brilliant. Obviously. So you, you know what it is. It's like a palace for counterculture. It's yeah. it's where you get your first piercing. Yes. Your first um, controversial T-shirt. Mm. Tattoo, hair braiding. Patchouli oil. Patchouli oil, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I used to, on a Saturday, aged 14, 15... Mm. I used to go and sit in Affleck's Palace Cafe on the top floor. Mm. And I'd have this. It's called Your Mum and Dad on Toast. <laughs> <laughs> Tell um, me what it looks like and what's in it. It looks like quite a sort of robust Welsh rarebit. Yes. Is that tuna? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's all it's all in here. <laughs> So there's tuna, soft cheese. Oh, oh, it's on a white piece of bread. Tuna, soft cheese, sweet corn in the tuna. I put cayenne pepper in there and then I top it with cheddar and a bit of Worcester sauce on top of the cheddar. I love sweet corn. I love tuna. I love cheese on toast. Warm tuna feels like something, the last thing you eat before you die. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, they've carried you into A&E. And they go, what has she been eating? And they go, oh, she had this tin of tuna that had been sitting on the radiator. And that's it. <laughs> I'm going to take some. I'm going, to, I'm going in. You know, that's, that's pretty good. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the heat. It's the heat, isn't it? Why is it called your mum and dad? I never asked. I was too busy acting cool in a corduroy cap. I'd sit in the corner looking rightly with my journal. Yeah. At that time, all my hair was shaved off apart from my fringe, like a twat. <laughs> I was kind of going, please look at me. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, I used to be exactly like that. The amount of energy it took to just go uptown. I remember the guy that either worked in the cafe or ran it was called James Wand. But um, the first time that James sort of raised his eyebrows at me in recognition, and I must have been going in there every week for months... But I've got to, all right, you know. The, the rest of the face, nothing, just the eyebrows. I thought, this is my time. <laughs> <laughs> I've arrived. <laughs> this is where I live. And Oh, God. And my, my love affair with Manchester sort of mm. stems from there. You're one of seven and you came along after your five sisters were born. As the first boy in the family, were you made to feel special? 
yes, we were ruined by the girls. Uh, really spoiled by them. Five women trying to use a bathroom, all older than you as well, so... Yeah, it was glorious. It was like, um, Dad was a night shift worker, so up until tea time when he got up and went to work, he had to be quiet. So when Dad left the house, there was just this explosion and women singing, running around, fighting over the bathroom and the stereo. But during the day, you kind of have to be like kind of cat burglars and yeah. mime artists. Yeah. Is that quite a lot of pressure, though, trying to keep all of you quiet when your dad's asleep? Well, it was just, it was impossible. And Mum developed a, a sort of a hiss of a whisper which could travel for about a mile. Don't you dare do that, your father's asleep. Like that, and it was like, it was everything a shout would do, but, like, really quiet. And yeah. depending on what mood Dad was in when he got up, we ate together. Mum made sure we had dinner together. All of you at yeah. once. So yeah. that's a big table. It wasn't, actually. <laughs> it's just... it, was, it was a standard round kitchen table. But what, what would happen was the youngest of, uh, would have to crawl in because you'd be hitting the walls of the kitchen either side of the table. So the youngest had to crawl in and out if people were sat down already. <laughs> <laughs> and Dad would be fragrant and looking wonderful and ready for work. Yeah. And if he was in a bad mood, it was terrible. Yeah. But I, I think he loved the throng. My dad loved a party. Yes. And so when he wasn't in a bad mood, it was great. But I remember this one time, my sister Becky was my immediate torturer. She's <laughs> she's the Becapedia <laughs> on my radio programme to this day. OK. And she yeah. gave me most of my music taste, actually. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, I was crawling under the table and she kicked me as I went past. So I hit the table legs... And the whole thing shook above me and there was this awful collective gasp as we were waiting for Dad's reaction. And then with a mouthful of food, he said, it's like a bleeding seance. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like that. Yeah. What, was, what did she cook? Mum cooked, there was always some vegetables, there was always some carbs and there was always some meat or fish. Yeah. I didn't realise that chilli con carne didn't always come with pasta twirls until I left home. <laughs> I thought that was how you had it. <laughs> your mum was a police officer and your dad, as you say, he works nights. He's proofreading newspapers. Yeah. So they must have had their hands full. How do they manage childcare when they're both working? Well, you weren't allowed to be married and a police officer if you're a woman. Yeah. So when she when she met my dad, she had to stop being a policewoman. She loved being the force. Mm. Um, so, no, mum was at home with us. And then when I was 12, they divorced and she went back to university and became a clinical psychologist. Blimey. Yeah. She's pretty amazing, Shirley. Uh, we didn't know many divorced yeah. families. It was right on that that point where people started realising that sometimes it's a good thing. And sort of guided by Shirley Valentine and Educating yeah. Rita were real big ones for her. They were sort of validating. Sort of Phil Redmond's writing for Brookside as well was... Yeah. was my dad was a Maxwell pensioner. You know, he picketed and it was yeah. it was around us. We were, we were that generation. My parents were born really quite poor and then improved their lot. Yes. And then... Thatcher sort of started swinging at it. Mm. So there's a song on the latest record, not to shamelessly plug the record. You can plug but whatever I, you I want. I refer to her as Sue Johnston. It was just too many comparisons. 
And there's the song in question is talking about the fact that mum kind of managed to shield us from all the hard stuff going on around us while we were growing up. Yeah. And I had a magical childhood, as did my brother, you know. What did you do when you went to spend time with your dad? Yeah, he's a mile away. And he said as much on, on the day that he was asked to leave. He was cinematically, or at least this is how I remember it, packing his suitcase into the car when I got home from school. And, oh, oh. And very, very hard work, very emotional. But mm. he said, I'll never be more than a mile away. And mm. he, he never was. So on a Wednesday and a Friday, we, me and my brother, because we were the only school-age kids left in the house, we'd go straight from school to his house. And I think he really enjoyed it. Obviously, the heartbreak and the upset of divorce oh, um, yeah. was, was really, really difficult for mum and dad. But I think he, he loved ploughing his own furrow a little bit mm. and he had to learn how to cook for the first time. And he made his spaghetti bolognese, which mm. we were mad for. And it was just a, a, a jar of Dormio yeah. uh, and, and some mince. Yeah, so he'd make this every Wednesday and Friday and every Wednesday and Friday he'd say, are you sure you don't want something else, lads? <laughs> and me and my brother would be like, we'd do anything for your spaghetti bolognese, Aww. Dad. And also he bought real Coca-Cola. And so we'd have a three-litre bottle of Coca-Cola and we could drink as much as we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and we called it Garvey Men's Night. Love it. And Wednesdays we'd watch Star Trek Next Generation. And then my brother reminded me of something the other day. He said, do you remember the Wogan thing? And I was like, no. And my dad was six foot four and he had a great big belly like I've developed. <laughs> and he would make a coffee and he'd sit down. That's very chic. Yeah. And he'd, he'd fall asleep <laughs> with the coffee resting on his belly. <laughs> and, and as he nodded off... It would tilt right to the edge of spilling. Yeah. And then the Wogan end theme tune would wake him up. <laughs> he'd go for a slurp, realise it was cold and say, can you shove another one in there for us, love? <laughs> How was school then around this point? I started becoming... Not very interested in academia, about 13. I'd been a very promising student until then. And then... But, and I always blamed my mum and dad's divorce. Mm. Uh, and then mum reminded me that they both attended a meeting with my teachers about mm. my behaviour, um, which means it was pre-divorce, pre-split, yes. because they never spoke to each other after they got divorced. Yeah. So I, was like, oh. I, hate, I hate that when you try and blame your parents and then they actually hit you with some complete facts. Of yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I mean, I always went to school. I was reminded of this the other day. The only time I ever wagged it for the day, me and my friends, Mike and Richard, had heard it was going to be the hottest day on record. Uh, and Rick, Rick was like, my mum's away at work, so we can go and hang out in my garden if you want. And the thrill of skipping school altogether, I was like, yeah, brilliant. So we went to his house and um, we just did our underpants, you know, folded <laughs> up our school uniforms, sunbathing in the back garden <laughs> and um, ran out of this sun cream that Rick had found in his in his bathroom. And he went in, he said, oh, there's some more here, and threw me the tube. 
And it was like part of a product range, but it wasn't sun cream. It was for removing dead skin off the bottom of your feet. <laughs> and I covered myself in it. So glamorous. <laughs> yeah. Just sat in your pants. Sat in my pants, yeah. And lost a layer of skin, scorched the new one. And, and of course, I had to fess up. I had to tell my mum what had happened because I was quite badly burned. <laughs> that couldn't have happened in school. <laughs> Um, when you were finding school awful, was there any foods then that you turned to for comfort? Always cheese on toast. And it was like I'd experiment. Apple under the cheese. Oh, please, no. A slice of apple just for a bit of sweet purchase, no? You see, now, I know you love brown sauce. I do love brown sauce. I'm trying to think. There's fruit in there. I, th- I think that a thin layer of apple... Yeah, it could work. It, it would just end up not being cooked properly. Neither hot, it would be neither cooked through, or cold. No, it's true. It, it, it kind of <laughs> temperatures a thing, right? With your cheese on toast, <laughs> warm tuna you weren't sure of. So, when have you discovered that you can actually sing? Because it doesn't feel like up until this point you're a particularly confident, showy person from a background where they encouraged you to get up and do a turn. Am I wrong? For a time, in adulthood, I didn't think I was particularly a show-off as a kid, but I realised I was completely. And he was probably competing for airtime with all all the children in the house. You had to be quite good as well. You'd, You'd get the... Shepherd's Crook, otherwise, pretty quickly. When, I mean, did you sing along to the radio in the kitchen? And oh, people, yeah. And, yeah, and people yeah. said, oh, you were good. Uh, yeah, again, that the song on, on, on the album referring to my mum as Sue Johnston, mm-hmm. it says, um, a, a woman humming to the radio that never didn't improve a tune. Mm-hmm. Mum sings along to everything. Yeah. And you can do this thing with her that me and my brother called Satellite Delay. Yeah. And because she'll sing whatever you're singing, you can put words in her mouth. So we were listening to um, the, th- the Thrill Is Gone, Chet Baker. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. It's, re- it's really, really mournful sound. Okay. I can see it in your eyes. I can feel it in your kiss. Yeah. I can see it in your eyes. Oh, the, um, right. yeah. And then at this yeah. point, Marcus is singing and Mum's going, in your eyes, you know, behind him. And then he went... Put my face between your thighs. And she went, between your thighs. Oh, you dirty little bastard. (laughs) They are the best jokes. Is there a moment that you remember where something comes on the radio and you can just nail that vocal? I would say probably Prince, uh, because he sang very operatically. Mm. Me and my brother shared the washing up duties. And you were allowed to listen to what you wanted. Yeah. Uh, so it took about 40 minutes. A uh, lot of plates. And yeah. <laughs> so you were forced for 40 minutes to sing along to your favourite music while looking at yourself. I mean, and me and my brother both became performers. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. 
Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You met the other boys from Elbow when you were all at college? Yeah. I met Mark. Mark was on the same. We were all at Berry College, apart from Craig was still at school. We used to play table football, smoke in the common room and try and make ourselves attractive to the others around us. Mum kicked me out when I was just 17 and I could have gone back if I'd apologised. I was missing my lectures at college and a letter got sent home. Oh, God. And she kicked me out. Yeah. And I was sofa surfing. Sofa surfing at 17, what's not to love? Until I ran out of sofas and then yeah. a lad from the pub who was a couple of years older sort of said, can you get 17 quid a week together? I was like, yeah. And he's like, there's, there's a room at our place. And then suddenly I had the house where there was no parents and all the band and all my friends to this day, you know, I kind of would hang out there. It doesn't sound very clean. It wasn't, no. And it was, no. It, I mean, the doors would seize up in the winter because it was so cold and damp, you have to leave through the kitchen window. <laughs> paint, paint me a picture of <clears throat> an average night of you all hanging out in this house. Oh, well, I've got to be careful about what I admit, you know, to all of our habits being, because the PTA will tear me a new ass. <laughs> uh, but, but, like... Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it was... OK, well, I'll tell you what, when it comes to a bit in the story... <laughs> That is clearly something you don't want the PTA to know. Just change it to something else. All right, right? brilliant. Okay, go on. We did an awful lot of flower arranging. <laughs> and, and the stuff you needed for flower arranging, you know, wasn't cheap on the, our income. So yes. the first part of the evening would be spent arguing about whose turn it was to get the flowers. <laughs> and then it would arrive and then we'd we'd bulk out the flowers with... <laughs> weeds with weeds <laughs> with weeds yeah we was we were sitting in a room <laughs> with the same vhs of the simpsons Series over and one. over again yeah uh, and then the band was another thing when everyone went to university a few years after that a couple of years after that the band stayed in berry to pursue the band and I was really envious of my mates that went to university and I would visit them. Mm. I felt like I'd really messed, missed out on that. But there was enough of us back home for them individually to come home. Mm. There was something other than their families to come home and visit. So we kept the same group of friends. So what did you want at this point? Do you want to be... Every, every day was spent in the studio. I worked at a rehearsal studio for free so that I had a bunch of keys... Yeah. So we're in there every day, we're treating it like a job. And you weren't allowed to get a job that interfered with it. And then eventually we all got work in a venue in Manchester called The Roadhouse. So there's about seven or eight years yeah, where we're, we're living like that. So, like at the studio, for example, what are you eating then? What's happening? What's... It's it's terrible takeout. Mr Pizza was the one. And it was run by this tall, elegant Iranian dude who talked to you like you were in a in a, a very high-end restaurant, you know, really made a fuss of you. And then at the same time as that, I once saw some scrotes, some lads taking the mickey out of him, and he gate-vaulted the counter, and they all ran out of the shop, 
and he caught one of them, kicked one of them up the bum, and he flew into the middle of the road. It was really accomplished. It was like he'd done that more than once. You don't mess with and Mr. Then, Peter. Sorry about that, gentlemen. Sorry about that. And behind the county, it's extraordinary. Did anyone in the band cook? Can any of them cook? Mark, at that point, could Mark they cook? Is, Mark is a great cook. So one of the many sort of falling down bedsits I lived in, I shared with Mark Potter from the band. And Pot's jobs were, one of them was that he was a, a short-order cook. OK. He, he worked in pubs and he worked in, I think he did a bit in a factory, but yes, he could make a lot of food very quickly. Short-order cooks are the best ones, though, because they can fire out genuine comfort food really quickly. Yeah. I lived off Mark's corned beef ash for about two years, three years. It's like chops the onion, carrot, potato, corned beef, throws it in the pot. It's got an oxo cube in it. Possibly. More often than not, though, just salt and pepper. Carrots, Swedes, anything like... Would never get that complicated, to be honest. Carrots, maybe carrots. At this point, your mum and dad (laughs) must have just been... Absolutely beside themselves about you. Yeah. After the first house that I lived in fell through, quite literally, um, I went to move in with my dad for about 10 months. And one morning, he came downstairs. I had a a weekend pub job at the time, and I I had had to wear a brewery tie, and I I I remember I was dealing with it. And my dad's arms came over my head and put the local paper in front of me. There was a picture of a guy I went to school with in a great big off-white creased suit with all his hair slicked back, receiving a huge cheque from Rover for selling more cars than anyone else <laughs> in the region. I, he puts it down in front of me and I went... <laughs> and then my dad went, that could be you! I was like, I fucking know! <laughs> it's terrifying! Yeah, yeah. and I, I moved out shortly after that. So you spent... All this time and, I mean, it sounds like fun at one level because you're, you know, you're with your friends and you're learning who you are creatively. But on the other hand, it's like a long time when nothing's happening. Mm. Were you happy at this point? There's been a part of my job in Elbow, which has always been on my own. Mm. because of the recording thing, because we've always had a four-track than an eight-track or whatever, mm. I've always had our music on headphones for me to write words to on my own. So I, I could happily, happily sit in a room on a day like this with a microphone and a pair of headphones writing me words and singing them down. It was just like I felt like the luckiest man in the world. Yeah, and I've been I've been to a couple of dark places mm. down the years, mostly mm. when I was younger. Mm. Yeah, there were, there were times when perhaps I wondered if the tail was wagging the dog in terms of my work, you know. Yeah. Was I deliberately being bombastic in order to have something to write about at some points? And how much you want something and how important it is to you to be a part of it, i.e., for me, it was music. Mm. It was because of how much music affects me. I, want, I wanted to be part of it because of that then, yeah, it's sort of like um, that that tight hold, that kind of level of importance, yeah, could lead you down some dark alleys. Performance-wise as well, that the harder something was to sing, i.e. the higher it was or the longer the note, the more I meant it. 
in my head. In 2008, you finally achieve mainstream success with One Day Like This. Your success has led to these huge arena tours. You're playing to much larger audiences than you have before. As the front man, what's that like for you, this change? We went from playing theatres where we were dead comfortable, where you can have a chat with the audience, mm. to large theatres where it gets a bit more difficult, yeah. and then to arenas, and it was without a pause. It was like, as popularity grew, we just kept getting bigger. Um, and at one point I felt completely out of control. Yeah. I was doing the shows and I was having a laugh, but I was I was really drunk. Yeah. I'd have to have at least half a bottle of scotch before I get on stage at, at, the, at the worst oh. part. Yeah. And then the other half while I was on stage. Mm. Um, and it was great fun, but actually what was going on in, inside towards the end of that period was got through another song, you know, only nine more to go sort of thing. Can you still do the vocal? Hammered when you've well, had like a bottle of... so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do your family think? I mean, they've, they've, they've spent how many years going, is this ever really going to properly go well, anywhere? It, it really... I mean, my relationship with my dad was all right. He'd accepted that I was going to be doing this for a living. Um, but he'd never been to see it. 2005, we supported Muse at the arena. And my sister Gina told him he was coming because he, he, he'd said he was coming to shows and then not turned up a few times. So Gina marched him to the arena all but... And she said when he went into the room, she realised not only had he never been to see us, he'd never been in a room that big. He'd never been in a arena. And he was asking her questions all the way through and all the questions were related to, who's that person? Do they work for our guy? It's like, yes, she works for the band. That's their guitar tech, yeah. You know, and I think he still had us in a transit van. Yeah. Nipping up the road. Yeah. You know, and... um, I think when he realised it was of a going concern and he genuinely enjoyed the show, my relationship with him changed completely. Tell me about when you met your wife, Rachel. I went to a wedding. I went to Benedict Cumberbatch's wedding. I knew Ben for a few years. I met him at an elbow gig. Ben's a who, and I just really clicked with him. There's a long convoluted story about New York and heartbreak and he and I both being there Mm. on our own. And I wasn't consciously looking for somebody, but I did buy a new suit and Rachel went to the wedding as well. And I went outside for a cigarette and Rachel came outside and asked me for one and I lit it for her. And then she said, you put the word shindig in a song. I think that's marvellous. And I said... I've also been known to use the word shenanigans. And apparently that was it. Apparently I'd come over and said hello. And then when I went for a cigarette, she was like, I love his music. And Andrew Scott was like, well, go on. <laughs> go and have a fight with him. Uh-huh. So Andrew's our silver black. So your early days of dating, what do you cook <laughs> What do you cook for her? Well, I've only got spaghetti bolognese <laughs> to this day. So our courtship... I lived in Manchester, she lived in London. Never the twain shall meet. <laughs> Except every Friday I'd go to London and spend the weekend there. And yes, on a Saturday or Sunday morning, Rachel would make eggs scruff. 
my nickname being Shindig, as of the way we met, hers is Scruff on account of her being a scruffy bastard. <laughs> and <laughs> hang on, wind back. She's not a scruffy bastard. She's, She's a so very scruffy. elegant kind of minxish woman. What is she scruffy? Yeah. Which bits of her are scruffy? Oh, I mean, just some of the ancient bits of uh, her, her comfy clothes. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. four boyfriend ago, tracksuit <laughs> bottoms. <laughs> uh, yeah, albeit, she'll say, these used to belong to Winston Churchill's grandson <laughs> and things like that. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, I don't care, they're minging. <laughs> anyway. What is egg scruff? Egg scruff is toasted... Bagel, bread, sourdough, whatever. Right. Uh, a layer of avocado mushed up. Okay. With a bit of chilli in there. Mm. Then, like, olive tapenade. Okay. Black olive tapenade, fried egg on top. That's uh, good. And more Tabasco if you want it, I often do. I was um, not expecting the olive tapenade. It's delicious. I didn't used to enjoy eating in restaurants. I, I, I was funny about being waited on. Were you? Yeah. But you had all the money. No no one was more suitable to be in these posh restaurants than you. But I, Yeah, but it was odd. I found it odd. So you didn't like eating out? No. So where'd you just eat in the house? Uh, yeah, just, yeah. I ate a lot of curry. And <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, when I met Rachel... And then Rachel comes along. Yeah, Rachel, Rach, sort of, being a Londoner, I suppose, yes. and, and being, you know, her mum's daughter... Yeah. Uh, and a dad's daughter, you know. They, yeah. they eat out a lot at some great places. But also, her and her mum, Diana Rigg, mm. they both want what's great, but it does not necessarily what's best, in inverted commas. Yeah. Like, Diana would get really excited about a microwave curry she'd found in M&S. Yeah. And things like that, you know. Uh, <laughs> and they, they both crave the simple things. Like, I always think at Christmas now, it's like Diana saying... Oh, no, you want the cheap chockies. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the cheap chockies are the best chockies. And, um, and no yeah. No lies told there. How at ease they are were, and how often we did it, sort of little by little got me used to it. So I, I know that you lost your dad, Don, yeah. and that was within a year of your son Jack mm-hmm. being born. What was it like having these huge moments in your life simultaneously at the same time? Well, um, Jack was uh, named after my dad's older brother. Mm. And I never saw my dad look like a little boy except in the company of his older brother. Yeah. Jack looks an awful lot like me and I look an awful lot like Don. That reframing when you have a kid, of you know, you become secondary to it Mm. and you start considering Mm. things like when you're gone Mm. way past what was probably the 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 success peak of the band 2008 or or rather its fame you still feel like you haven't started Mm -hmm. you know work-wise do you feel like that yeah i feel frightened that i haven't got enough time left that's exactly how i feel Mm. but then suddenly with jack there it's like part of me now is just considering well, every decision I make has to be him first. Yeah. Jack being born took the edge off Dad dying mm-hmm. in a big way. Mm-hmm. It made death part of life a little bit more. It made Dad's death part of a cycle yeah. and a continuum 
Cycle, I don't believe, actually. I think we're all moving forward all mm. the time. Yeah. Rachel was uh, filming in Vancouver for three months. Mm. And f- for lots of reasons, including Jack being born, a whole pregnancy, she, she needed to work and she'd supported me and my work for a while. It was her turn. Mm. And it was vital that she get out there and do this job. Um, so we upped sticks and Dad was already... Uh, receiving palliative care at my sister's house, at yeah. Gina's house. So I got, I got to say goodbye to him in a way that I was like, you know, Dad, I'm going to Vancouver and it's going to be three months and, you know, this is likely the last time I'll see you. I'll talk mm. to you on the phone, but this is likely. And he was like, I'm so glad you're doing it because there was a moment when I was wobbling. Yeah. He said, I'm so glad you're doing it, that you're in the right place, doing the right thing. And anyway, I'll see you in the, uh, a beer garden in the summer was the last thing he said to me. So, convince me that he wasn't going anywhere. So, we're at the end of our series and at the beginning of a new year, which none of us can predict. With what we've all been through in the last two years, I feel like comfort is more important than ever. Obviously, my thing is food, but yours is lyrics. So, can you leave us with your favourite comforting lyrics to close off the series? So th- I've been talking about my mum a lot and I've been talking about childhood and most of the new album is about childhood. I think lockdown, meaning we were all with our children mm-hmm. for a lot of the time. Diana, Rachel's mum, died in our house. We nursed her through the last six months of her life. It meant that there was lots of the continuum, there's lots of life and death and childhood and love and family. It was all about that. So when I heard Calm and Happy... It was. It felt like the music from an Alan Bennett play, you know, mm. that era of 70s, mm. something eerie is going on. And it was another reason why I ended up picturing my childhood and how my mum saved us from not just what was happening with Thatcher and Robert Maxwell and my dad's community, but also the backdrop of the north of England in the 70s was also the Moors murders and great, great poverty and none of which are realised because of this wonderful woman. Anyway, here's, here's the lyric. Baby lamb, did you steal some matches? Guilty in my fist. Baby lamb, did you like the feeling? No, my little bones are shaking and my heart beats holes in me. Maxwell, Belarus, DNA of those dark and bitter days. No, it never came my way. Sue Johnston in corduroy and marigolds had hold of us had hold of me. Guy Garvey, thank you for comfort eating with me. Thanks, Grace. I've loved it. (laughs) Please do another series. Oh, that was amazing. Thank you. This was the last episode of Comfort Eating for Season 2. Thank you all for being here with me. I hope you've enjoyed listening nearly as much as I've loved making it for you. This episode was produced by Emma Roberts. The series producer is Leia Green and the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Music is by Axel Cacoutier and mix and sound design is by Samuel Anani. There are now 24 episodes of Comfort Eating for you to chew over until we next meet in my kitchen. Take care. This is The Guardian. 